We're about to start. My name is Kristen Krein, and I am very honored to be your moderator this afternoon. It is not, if this is not your first time, I would like to briefly outline that the talk and the question and answer period are recorded by Shaw TV, thank you, and made available on the SACPA's website. If you are having lunch with us this afternoon, um, if you would please place $12 in the basket at each table and have someone counted as well. These sessions are promptly 25 to 30 minutes each. And while we engage in the presentation, following that is lunch and the question period finishing at around 1.30. Today's discussion topic is the City of Lethbridge responding adequately to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the TRC recommendations. To speak to this is Roy Pogorzowski, a traditional Métis from Saskatchewan. Roy is the director for the FNMI Gathering Place at the University of Lethbridge. He has worked with several municipalities to create a national equity and inclusion guide, facilitated human rights training in Europe, instructed courses at the First Nations University of Canada and at the University of Lethbridge and chaired the Reconciliation Committee for the City of Lethbridge. This list goes on. Please give a warm welcome to our speaker today, Roy. Uh, thank you very much, Kristen. Um, first off, I'd just like to say how humbled and honored I, I am to be asked to speak today. Since there's so many amazing people in the community I've had the pleasure of working with, especially on this implementation plan, uh, that could speak to this just as well as I am. And, and there was one correction that I actually co-chaired with Amanda on the reconciliation implementation, a good friend of mine. So we co-chaired that process together. Um, so as Kristen said, I'm Métis from Saskatchewan. Uh, from northern Saskatchewan. I'm a phenomenal Métis jigger, if you've ever seen me. I'm pretty amazing, aren't I? Yeah, there we go. Okay, I got a few claps. I, I'm just joking. Obviously, I, I've eaten too much over the years. I'm slowing down, as my friends would tell me. But uh, I'm still in the game. I love, I love jigging. I'm, I've been very involved with my culture. And when I say traditional, that holds two, two kind of usages to the term. One is I was fortunate that my family kept the culture together. Uh, but secondly, it also means that our family faced a lot of oppression being a traditional Métis uh, in Saskatchewan. Um, and a lot of things that kind of allude to what I'm going to talk about here today in my presentation. Before I get into the presentation, though, I would like to acknowledge that we are here on Blackfoot territory. And as a Métis person coming to Blackfoot territory, it's a really um, humbling experience to being given the support that I, I'm given uh, to do some of the work that I've been able to do here in the city of Lethbridge over the years. And I'll tell you a bit about my journey. I'm a bit of a storyteller mixed in with some of the concrete facts about what we did. Uh, but when I moved here, I moved here to Blackfoot Territory in 2009. And I was a young, naive kid just finishing my master's degree. Some would say I'm still a young, naive kid, but uh, well, whatever. <laughs> we'll have it that way. Um, but I was in Belgium studying my master's degree and I was about $52,000 in debt. So when you're $52,000 in debt, you need a job, like now. So I applied for about 100 different jobs and all over Canada, different places, and I applied for one at the Aboriginal Council of Lethbridge called the Aboriginal Diversity Support uh, Program. It was a new program um, in response to a Tim Hortons incident that happened years before. 
Um, so I applied for this job. I did the interview from Belgium on Skype, and <laughs> the people were at the average. So I was at 10 p.m. They were at 2 p.m. We were doing a Skype interview. The video cut out, as is technology, is always effective communication. Um, so I'm talking here with my voice. I'm like, oh, no, I didn't get that job. There's no way I could have got that job. A few of my colleagues were on the other end of that phone call many, many years ago, and uh, and I got this call that, hey, you're moving to Lethbridge, you're moving to Blackfoot Territory to uh, take on this position. So I flew from Belgium mid-October to Regina, said hi to my family who I hadn't seen for a year and a half, <laughs> and then I loaded up all my worldly possessions, which was a backpack of clothing and a few small suitcases of other stuff my mom kept for me. Um, I threw them in a Mustang that I bought off my friend for $1,000, terrible car. Uh, we still talk about it this day. He ripped me off, I always say. but. I load up this Mustang and I start driving to Lethbridge. And I don't know much about Lethbridge, Blackfoot territory. I, I'm kind of just driving in this car, getting there, and I didn't know what I was going to experience here. When I came here, I was welcomed by my colleagues, Jacinda, Amanda, Trina, a number of them are up front here, um, who welcomed me here and were my family here, essentially, because I didn't have anyone in Lethbridge with me. Um, and when I started that position, I started taking complaints from... Uh, folks who had experienced discrimination. That was my job, to take complaints, mediate in the community, and to start offering education around human rights to folks. When I was taking those complaints, I was a little shocked at first at the very overt racism that was I was seeing here in Lethbridge. I'm coming from Regina, too. You know, Regina's a pretty challenging place for its Indigenous folks. And when I came here, I was just shocked at how overt it was. You know, we worked hard on that, and I worked there for two and a half years, and then all of a sudden, I had to go. I had to get married. Uh, <laughs> so I, so I, uh, I packed up my, it wasn't a Mustang, I upgraded to a Ford Escort by then, um, but I packed up my Ford Escort, and I headed back to Saskatchewan. I said hi to my family again, and then I went off to Belgium to try to get married. Um, try is the imperative word there. <laughs> I didn't get married, but I came back to Canada, which was pretty cool, and <laughs> there was a job opening at the city of Lethbridge for an inclusion consultant position. And I thought, what an amazing position, as I'd worked with CMARD before. I applied for it, and I was successful, and I came here to do some work with our municipality. A number of things have come across my desk in those years. Amazing things, challenging things, crazy things. It's been a pretty amazing four years in that role. Um, and during that time, one of the things that came across the desk, we had started with the Lethbridge Indigenous Sharing Network, and sadly to say, the Aboriginal Council of Lethbridge dissolved in 2014. It was no longer in the downtown. So Indigenous people downtown didn't have an advocacy place to go to uh, in order to have conversations, in order to get support provided for them. Um, so a bunch of us came together and formed this interagency group again and kept it going called the Lethbridge Indigenous Sharing Network. We had a community plan in 2016, and out of that community plan uh, came the concept of reconciliation being important. And we know that the TRC released the calls to action in December 2015, those 94 calls to action that said, here are what the different levels of government, academic institutions, faith-based institutions, and society as a whole should look into when we're talking about reconciliation. So we talked as a group and we said, okay, reconciliation is important. At the same time, the municipal government was also saying, hey, we got to start looking into reconciliation. We collaborated our efforts, and fortunately enough, everyone was okay with me being a co-chair with Amanda, which was uh, pretty, pretty wild stuff, because this is a daunting subject to talk about. It is large. 
Um, it is important, but it is full of things that we can't forget, and they call that the truth. And we always must remember that as we move forward with this, that the truth is involved in this process as well. And so I'll go a bit more into that as I go on with my presentation. But I want to just go back a bit and talk a bit about, put some personal spin for myself onto it. So my family uh, moved to northern Saskatchewan in the 1850s. And this is my great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cyprian Morin, and his wife, Mary Cook. And they moved and settled in Meadow Lake. And there you'll see Morin Crescent today, and you'll see a number of things. And they forged a life for us up there. Being up in the north meant that we were involved with a little event called uh, the Northwest Resistance, as the Métis would call it. You'd hear other ethnographers call it a rebellion. Uh, but we were up north, and we, uh, a lot of our members, uh, fought alongside our relatives there in Batoche, in, in, uh, with Gabriel Dumont, with, with the Fiddlers, with uh, Louis Riel, and a number of things. So a lot of our relatives, some of our relatives are buried in Batoche. A lot of our relatives, post-1885, faced a ton of oppression. And I often use this in a lot of my lectures just to show you kind of some of the things we faced as Métis people in Saskatchewan moving forward, some of the things my family had to face. We were always seen as, and Johnny McDonald said this, and I quote, an unwanted third race in this country. But further beyond that, we were always seen as hindering progress towards the union of a country. And coming out of that, I, when I was born in 1982, I was raised in this world where my family was, although holding on to their traditions, were very ashamed to be Métis. Um, and following that in 1885, Métis split off into four categories of people. One of the categories was those that were light-skinned with European names that could assimilate. And if you heard Senator Bayek's comments today or yesterday about going back to the 1969 Act and just assimilating cultures, that stuff is still being said today by leaders in our country that we should just assimilate and become one. And a lot of the Métis felt forced to assimilate into that world. Our other group of Métis were um, dark-skinned, had uh, indigenous names, and lived on fringe of reserves. So it was easier for them to jump on a reserve and take treaty. My family lived in an isolated community where they kept a lot of our practices but faced a lot of oppression uh, being Métis in the north. And the fourth one, which was also our family, was called the Road Allowance People. They were people that lived on the side of roads, lived off scraps, were deported from area to area. A lot of their family members went, uh, went into the child welfare system and, and they lived uh, pretty uh, challenging lives in our country. And so this is kind of, so being raised in the 80s in my family, this is, I saw my, my uh, auntie posted this today on Facebook, a young picture of my grandpa Freddie. My grandpa Freddie was a, a Métis activist and he was, he always championed being Métis and, and, you know, and those things in our country. And growing up, you know, I had, I had the pleasure of having this. But in our family, it was much different than what I had faced in schools. When I went into schools, a lot of times my family would either tell me I was fortunate that I was light-skinned because I don't have to face the reality of overt racism. I just heard a lot of comments from people growing up who thought that they, it was open to talk to me about these things. Um, but growing up, we were, we were told not to be proud to be Métis. And this is my mom and grandma. They're the two loves of my lives. Um, they both uh, went through the school system in northern Saskatchewan. And when I was in high school, I remember the first lesson I heard about the Métis was we fought a rebellion and we were rebels and traitors to the country of Canada. Being a high school student who was Métis, I was like, wow. 
I don't know if I want to tell my friends that I'm the rebel and the traitor to this country uh, in this classroom. That could cause a lot of problems. And that was the education I heard about our people. Pretty much nothing else other than that we were rebels and traitors to this country. My mom and my grandma have always been a resilient source for me. They've always been the ones who are keep moving forward no matter what happens in life. They always kept life positive for me and they always kept me away from a lot of uh, the dangers that a lot of my family members are going through. And so for that I pay them immense respects uh, for all the work that they've done. But these, these two beautiful, when I got into university, this was the first time I was exposed to residential schools. I took a class from um, a professor named Annette Sear and she actually started educating about these schools to me. And I was learning, this was about the time where um, survivors were going to the courts, op reopening up a number of trauma in telling the courts what happened to them in residential schools. It was the start of the court process. So I went back to my mom and grandma and I had a few questions uh, for them. And I asked them a bunch of questions. They didn't really want to talk about it. Uh, my mom actually gave me her journal when I was like 20 years old, early university to read at the advice of a social worker. And I read that journal and it had a profound uh, effect on me that day because I read things that no 20-year-old should have to read about their mom. The things that go on in her mind, the mental health issues that she deals with, the things that she can't control. The things I saw but didn't know what the effect was. I just thought something was wrong with my mom. I didn't know that she went through these systems of abuse. So as I'm reading, I got really fired up in university. I became a real angry student. <laughs> I'd go in classes and I'd speak my mind and I'd get really angry uh, when people would say something. And I had a, a mentor back then tell me, Roy, you got to harness, you got to harness that energy and use it uh, for good things. And his name was Del Anaquad uh, um, with the First Nations University of Canada. And he really said, you got to harness that and use that for good because that energy is just going to get you in a lot of trouble um, if you keep holding angry to these type of things. And so this is very important when we talk about reconciliation because I hear this terminology come out now. And still a lot of people have no idea what reconciliation means. And we've seen this work done in Australia, we've seen it done in Rwanda, we've seen it done in other places uh, where there's been trauma, and we're trying to kind of get there as well. So starting this journey as chair was very daunting because I didn't know how to approach this. I talked to elders in, in Blackfoot territory, I talked to elders back home, I've talked to a number of people on how to proceed. And the one thing that I got from the TRC was it is truly about relationships. So moving forward, it's how do we build relationships? How do we acknowledge the truth? And how do we educate about something that happened in our country that is absolutely traumatic? Um, that these things happen to students and children and our family members. And that's where it gets personal uh, for a lot of us. And I remember me, Amanda, Jacinda, and a number of others having those conversations. I, I put that up there. I already skipped that slide. So we'll get right into the meat of things. But reconciliation... I struggled with this term, as I'm sure many other Indigenous people have struggled with it, and many non-Indigenous people have struggled with it. People often ask me, what does it mean? And I'm like, whoa, I can't give you a full-on definition about this, and there's many reasons why that I'll get to. But some points that I want to raise early is, reconciliation means something different to everyone. Everyone in this room has a different concept and notion of reconciliation. Oftentimes people will ask me, and this is a true quote that I get, they'll say, what do indigenous people want? What do they want from reconciliation? What, how can we reconcile with them? What can we do? 
And I often say, I'm like, well, first off, indigenous people is a big umbrella term. It's a very homogenous term for a lot of people. A lot of different diverse groups of people. We have over 600 First Nations across this country. We have over 400,000 Métis across this country. And we have about four, over 45,000 Inuit in the north from 53 different communities. Reconciliation for one community could mean wildly different things for another community. And so those generalizations have to stop in this process. These are individuals reconciling together. And that's one thing that we tried to break down in our process, was that everyone was here as an individual and they were contributing towards their journey towards reconciliation. Because everyone's on their own path and they're going to learn at their, in their own way. But at least starting the journey is very promising. Lived experience plays a factor in reconciliation. I just shared a bit of mine with you today. Uh, everyone's lived experience is different. And I can't emphasize that enough because we can't go into reconciliation assuming anything because our assumptions and prejudgments are 99.8% wrong. I'll give you a point too, just in case you get lucky. But, but our assumptions and judgments are normally wrong. And that's the case for everything, even when we talk about racism, discrimination, and a number of things. When we prejudge, when we assume, we're normally wrong. And so everyone's lived experience in the process is important. That's why when we hear from survivors and the testimony we heard at the TRC, how, how important it was to hear that and to sit there and acknowledge it and to validate it in our country was very important. The healing can begin because people have shared uh, what happened to them and their stories. Reconciliation is a very abstract comment or concept. Um, it's so big that we can't grasp any one direction on this. It comes from many directions. And many of the people I've had working on this, we've seen that. The discussions around reconciliation, the debates around reconciliation, the people at the table with different opinions of what it means, that's all valuable information if, as we advance as a community with this plan. And we were able to have some of those discussions. If misused, reconciliation can become a buzzword or meaningless symbolism. Because if we just say reconciliation but we never acknowledge the truth, or if we're not willing to have those challenging discussions, then what are we talking about when we say the word reconciliation? It might get you grant funding, it might get you a number of different things, but it's not going to be meaningful for the people in that process. And that's one time where we have to realize, how does reconciliation affect me? How does it mean to me? Reconciliation, um, if effective, uh, will improve relationships. We can see that already. I, I'll be honest with you. I can see that in our community with how relationships have formed and they've been developed and how people have come together. Um, it can also uh, eliminate systemic racism, which is a huge uh, concept in our country. And we've just seen uh, Indigenous affairs split into two different groups, one's service and one's relationship and treaty building. I don't know how that'll pan out. I guess only time will tell. But that's what we're seeing in our country, right? It will remove barriers and access to society for Indigenous peoples. And that's one of the things mentioned in the calls to action is access, removing barriers so that Indigenous people can participate fully, Métis, First Nations, Inuit, in our communities, um, which means employment, economically, from an entrepreneurial perspective, politically, socially. From a number of those realms, how can Indigenous people access those um, those points there. Reconciliation, if ineffective, will continue to be divisive. It'll continue to divide people if we can, 
if we can't get around a concept of what that means. Um, I'll, I'll storm ahead here because I want to get into the plan. It'll be empty symbolism, like I thought. It'll just be a symbolic thing that we talk about. And that's one thing that I'm proud of this plan is that we're moving beyond just symbolism. We're moving beyond just the terminology and we're moving forward into some action. And I'm, I'm a big fan of action. I think action is very uh, important. I've seen a lot of people in my time who love to talk and love to say a lot of things, but action is really important. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do yourself to get involved? And it could be even showing up to an event uh, that we have coming next week. But something, what is actionable that you can do? And reconciliation is everyone's responsibility. Everyone in this room has a responsibility towards reconciliation. Right? And again, I'll emphasize it's important that we continue to educate for the truth. So I'm going to talk a bit about reconciliation Lethbridge and the city's role within that. When we started this process, we were very um, excited about the opportunity to gather as a committee. We didn't know in which route we would take. We knew there was calls to action that called on the municipality to do certain things. And I do want to uh, uh, give a shout out to uh, Councillor Carlson, um, who's here with us here today, and, uh, and Mayor Spearman, who sat on this process with us for the whole time. And I know I can, I, I can probably get Amanda and Jacinda's approval and Trina's when we say, this has never really happened to that level of engagement that we've seen from some of our political leaders. Very exciting. Um, senior manager Jeff Green was a big uh, part of the process and of course a number of our committee members that helped out. We debated, discussed this design and it became Reconciliation Lethbridge. And you can read the book, I have the book here with me um, on reconciliation that you can get out the week. I know Jerry's got a ton in his office. Um, but you can look at these plans and look at why, how we came up with this logo but there was a lot of debate about it. But we've branded it. We have a flag that's going to be going up next uh, Tuesday um, up at City Hall. We have a pipe ceremony that will happen. There will be a walk for reconciliation. There will be a speaker on reconciliation, Beverly Jacobs. So we're very excited to bring this week of education forward to people. Now, this, wasn't, this was a 10-month process of lots of consultation, lots of discussion. We had open calls to elders to come and engage the process. We also uh, took it out uh, at different community gatherings we did to get feedback through the Native Counseling Services. And a lot of people offered feedback in this. It was a very open process. Anyone could come and offer their feedback. It's not a concrete document. We know it's not perfect. But we also do know that a lot of people can add. It's very fluid. A lot of people can add points as we move on because it'll be a continuation of a document. Uh, but one of the things that was exciting is we're the first municipality throughout the country to have a concrete plan to move forward. To look at calls to action that are actually embedded in this plan. And one of the unique and exciting opportunities is that St. Albert and a lot of the northern municipalities, Edmonton, were actually looking at this plan as something that could help them move forward. As well as Saskatchewan, uh, Saskatoon called us, who are also doing quite well in their process with the Office of the Treaty Commissioner, called us to talk about this plan. Um, it's a very unique opportunity. It, takes, it needs a lot of work and a lot of action behind it and a lot of people to gather behind this process. But it's in a plan that City Council endorsed on June 19th, uh, which is really exciting that they, that they put uh, their support behind it moving forward. Reconciliation Week is only one action to the plan. We've got much more to do. Some of the calls to action that I'm going to talk about here 
Jordan's principle, looking into indigenous child welfare, that's very important to have that embedded in our plan as we look at youth poverty in our community or we look at how we can support indigenous youth in our community. Reconciliation, following the principles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the truth knowledge or the traditional knowledge youth assessment that the planning department does, identifying sacred sites and working with our neighboring communities, Kainai and Begani, to identify these sites um, in our community is very important. Not just developing something without looking or consulting on uh, what's there. That's a huge uh, part in the plan. Providing national, uh, the National Council of Reconciliation with updates is also very important. And of course, professional development for city staff is embedded in there. And there's a whole community piece as well. But professional development is very important because how can we provide the training to city staff in the corporation so that they can utilize this document to enhance the work that they do for the city of Lethbridge? So it is, it is a real opportunity. And I think with the people that we have at the table, with the collaboration between the Lethbridge Indigenous Sharing Network and the City of Lethbridge, I feel we have a real opportunity to advance this work. So I've got five minutes, so I'm going to run through quickly what I think could possibly hinder this, but could possibly be an opportunity as well. One of the things that we have to consider in this plan, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, is identity plays a big role in this. I've talked to a lot of indigenous youth and some of them have said to me, reconciliation really doesn't apply to me. I've reconciled, I'm good. It applies to the folks that are still in trauma. It applies to the folks that are healing. I'm, I'm good right now. I've talked to others that say reconciliation's for future generations. We need to reconcile now so that our future generations don't have to go through the same stuff we went through. Regardless of the opinion, everyone's identity in this process is important. And we can, there's a lot of things we can share in this process. We share things like we all care about, we, we care about appearances, our appearance. We fam, friends and family we care about. There's a lot of interest. We all, we all have interest. These are things we share in that process. And to bring it closer, that intersectional piece in this process of reconciliation, I have to emphasize so much is because everyone who comes to the table for reconciliation brings their own identity with them, brings a number of things that we don't even consider uh, as being diverse, like our family status that we come with, like our geographic location that we're from, like our age that we bring to the table. These are all important proponents towards planning and working towards reconciliation. And our subjective identity. Here's one thing that's always uh, bugged me when I've been working on inclusion, is how people don't just let you define who you are. What you say who you are is important to you, and there's a number of things that come into that. There are abilities, there are attitudes, our beliefs, our stories, our records. Indigenous people want to hold their own stories, their own histories. They want that told from their perspectives. It's, it's not crazy to think that. I've talked to a lot of students who said, we want to tell our stories. We want to be involved in the processes. We want to be involved from the beginning of processes. But for everybody, we have these. Our talents, our history, they all make who we are. And I think until, as a society, we can get down to the subjective part of our identities and allow people to identify as who they want to be or identify as, reconciliation's going to be tough because we're going to do a lot of this stuff. We're going to continue to prejudge people, assume things about people. And when we continue to do that, reconciliation's just not possible because we go back into the same practices of judging, of stereotyping, of biasing people, and that is not reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is truly about building relationships. So I went through the terminology phase, but one of the things that we struggle with as Indigenous people in this country and that I think non-Indigenous people need to be aware of is our identities have been controlled by policies by the government. And I'll tell you a quick story about Métis. I know Kristen's going to wave me down here pretty quick, right? So I'll tell you a quick story about Métis folks. There is a thing called Bill C-31. You know, Bill C-31 came into place to allow status back because when an Indigenous woman would marry uh, a non-Indigenous person, they would lose their children, would lose their status. And through this, a lot of people who lost their status, a lot of women, a lot of children lost their status, guess where they identified? They identified as being Métis. And Métis communities accepted them in to our communities at that time because it was good for our communities to grow. But following uh, Bill C-31, all of a sudden, everyone gets their status back, and a lot of people go back to being Indigenous and leave Métis communities. And now we've created terms. Wait, they were back there? Oh, we've created terms like Indigenous, Aboriginal, Métis, non-status Indian, status Indian, Native American, Treaty Indian, Inuit and Indian. That sounds very complicated, and it is complicated, because oftentimes, people get confused of even what to call indigenous people in our country. So those are some of the things that we have to work on and we have to educate about as well, is that this isn't just about one policy, this is about a number of policies in our country that have affected indigenous people. And that's all part of this process of reconciliation, is educating about those, identifying about those, and, uh, and moving forward. My final thought before I, before I let us break for lunch here, I guess, I, I guess I'm in control of that right now because I got the time, right, Kristen? Yeah. The final thought is decolonization. We hear this term, and again, it's a massive term. But one of the things I heard from an elder one time, and it was a really kind of unique opportunity, and they said, you can travel anywhere around the world. You can go anywhere that you want. You can do anything that you want. But the hardest journey you'll ever take is connecting your mind to your heart. Once you take that journey and you look inside, you can actually um, start to connect with things a lot more, build those relationships, understand um, these systems and so forth. Um, and so decolonization is the process of that. It's looking internally at ourselves, looking at the things that we know to be true, and that, and that begs that question, how do you know what you know to be the truth? It's looking at those truths breaking them down and opening up to understanding different worldviews and different perspectives. And when we can start to do that, we can start to have real and honest discussions about uh, what truth and reconciliation really is. And, and on that note, I just want to thank you for your time. I want to say that I think our city is doing a great job right now in this process, and I look forward to being a participant in that. And I hope that a lot of you will join us for Reconciliation Week uh, from September 18th to the 23rd. And so again, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you.